Psalm 139. O Lord, Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Thou dost understand my thought from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path and my lying down and art intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, Thou dost know it all. Thou hast enclosed me behind and before and laid Thy hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from Thy Spirit? Where can I flee from Thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, Thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, Thou art there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there Thy hand will lead me, and Thy right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to Thee, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to Thee. For Thou didst form my inward parts. Thou didst weave me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to Thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are Thy works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from Thee when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in Thy book they were all written the days that were ordained for me when there was as yet not one of them. How precious also are thy thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. (laughs) O that thou wouldst slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak wickedly against thee. And thine enemies take thy name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate thee, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against thee? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Dear Father, as we consider this morning this powerful, heartfelt prayer of David, we ask that You would speak to our hearts. That we would know things about You this morning that transform the way we think of You and the way we live. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God willing, I'll be in Ohio next weekend for Michael and Shelby's wedding. So rather than moving on to the next passage in the Gospel of John today, I thought this would be a great opportunity to consider another wonderful passage that's been on my heart lately. I settled on uh, talking about Psalm 139 before I heard Scott DeGroff's message last Sunday. And then having heard it, 
I realized that God was doing a little orchestration because there is a, a strong connection between the theme of that message and the theme of this great passage. Psalm 139 is one of many great psalms written by King David. And like many of his other psalms, this is a deeply personal prayer of David lifted up to God. But David didn't write his psalms only for himself. If you'll notice in the prologue to the psalm, it says, for the choir director, a psalm of David. Now, it's not known for sure whether those notations at the beginning of the Psalms were in the original text, but they've been around for a long time. And there is no doubt that when David wrote these Psalms, he intended for them to be sung by the congregation, put to music, and sung by the congregation of Israel when Israel came together to worship Yahweh at the temple. So David didn't write this song so that the Israelites could say, wow, David's relationship with God must have been really great for David. (laughs) He wrote it so the people of Israel would know as intimately as he the God who had become everything to him. Now this psalm is worthy of a whole series of messages. Maybe someday we'll approach it on that basis. But my hope this morning is that we will come away understanding a very simple big-picture reality about God that pervades this prayer of David because it matters a lot. There is a simple, stunning truth about God at the heart of this psalm that drove David to overflow with exclamations of wonder, of amazement. And that simple, stunning reality was all about God's active awareness of David himself. It seems sometimes to me that, that we go through our days acting as if God was stretched really thin to give adequate attention to all of His children. So we act then as if we'd better be, better be paying very careful attention to ourselves. It's as if we think God is in heaven saying, okay, see there's 86,400 seconds in a day and I never sleep. So that gives me, you know, I, could, I could pay attention to about 20,000 of my children for about four seconds each. And then that would leave me a little bit of time to listen to a few prayers as long as they weren't any longer than the prayers that most of my children pray. Then I can move on to the next 20,000 of my kids tomorrow. Now, I don't think we take it quite that far, but we... We often go through our days as if the sovereign God of the universe isn't actually paying a whole lot of attention to us. So to make sure that our well-being isn't being neglected, we pay a whole lot of attention to ourselves. This marvelous prayer of David tells tells us that that concept of God, that idea about God couldn't be further from the truth. I'm going to do something this morning that would please our recently departed brother, Haddon Robinson, who was one of the most influential teachers of preaching in the modern age. I'm going to draw your attention right up front to one big idea from this passage. And then I'm going to show you how I derived that big idea from the passage 
And then I'm going to remind you of that big idea at the end of the passage. So hopefully by the time you leave, you'll know the big idea. The big idea is this, beloved. God's active awareness of you is so complete and so perfect that your awareness of yourself is useless. Let me say it one more time. God's active awareness of you is so complete and so perfect that your awareness of yourself is useless. My outline for this psalm flows directly from four passionate declarations that David makes to the God who has searched him and known him, along with one very personal appeal that shows up right at the end of the psalm that David makes to God. The four passionate declarations are these. How wonderful is your knowledge of me. How wonderful is your workmanship in me. How how precious are your thoughts toward me. And how hateful to me are those who hate you. The passionate appeal at the end is search me, know me, and lead me, O Lord. David begins the psalm with a statement of fact in verse 1. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. And then he spends the next 17 verses (laughs) explaining, elaborating to God on the perfection of that searching and knowing. The first passionate declaration of David is in verse 6. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. And what knowledge is David talking about in verse 6? Well, he tells us in the first five verses. God's intimate personal knowledge of him, of David. And I'll point out again that when David wrote this psalm, He expected it to be sung in the corporate worship of Israel. He's calling, not only is he calling out to God, but he's writing this psalm to call all of God's people to declare this same thing to God as fervently and as passionately as he did. How wonderful, O Lord, is your knowledge of me. It's greater than I can even comprehend. In the first five verses, David sets the stage for that declaration. And if you look at those verses, you'll discover a few things that God knows about you that are pretty astounding. First, He knows everything that you do. He knows when you sit down and when you rise up. And that's what, that's a figure of speech, very simple figure of speech that occurs hundreds of times in the Bible. It's called a mirrorism. And a mirrorism is where you put a couple of things to represent a much bigger group of things or a much bigger whole. One of the most commonly known mirrorisms in the Bible is when Jesus says to John in the first, on the first page of the book of Revelation and on the last page of the book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Now, does that mean that Jesus only shows up at the beginning of stuff and at the end of stuff? No, it means that He is all in all. 
David's point in saying God knows when I sit down and when, when I rise up is that God knows everything that David does every moment of every day just as He knows everything that you do. Not only does God know everything that you do, He knows everything that you're going to do. David says God scrutinizes my path and my lying down. He knows every step you're going to take each day until you lie down in your bed at night. He knows everything you do. He knows everything you're going to do. And He knows why and how you do all of it. David says he is intimately acquainted with all my ways. And then he knows everything you're going to say before you say it. (laughs) In fact, before you even think it. Before there is a word on your tongue, God knows it all. That's not to mention that uh, Jesus says in Matthew 10.30 that God knows the number of hairs on your head. Unless you're carry, and then he knows the number of hairs that used to be on your head. I know that's awful, but but Carrie's a really good friend, so I can do that. Now, if your reaction to those declarations is to is to think, well, <laughs> that's way more than I know about myself, then you're on exactly the right track. What David is declaring here about God is astounding. And we need to notice that he's not speaking of God's infinite knowledge about all the rest of his creation. He talks about that in other Psalms. He's speaking about God's knowledge of him. The only human being David mentions in this prayer before he talks about the enemies of God in verse 19 is himself. And he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. He's saying, I can't even remotely know myself the way you know me, Lord. I can't even imagine that kind of knowledge of me. Then in verses 7 to 12, David acknowledges something else about God that's equally astonishing. It's sort of a corollary to this declaration that God knows me He knows all about me. And that corollary is God is everywhere that I am. There's no place I can go that He isn't. Even if you could go to the remotest parts of the heavens or to the depths of the grave, God would be right there. If you could transport yourself to that place on the horizon that sees the first rays of the dawn at sunrise, God would be right there. If you could dive to the depths of the sea, God would be right there with you. When David says, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? He's not saying, God, I would wish I could get away from you. He's saying, if I tried, there'd be no chance. See, David's not lamenting God's omnipresence, the fact that God is everywhere all the time. He's celebrating it. He's celebrating it. Because it guarantees that God's knowledge of him is absolutely perfect and complete. God not only knows his thoughts from afar, God's right there all the time. 
Not one thing that affects David is ever unknown or unseen by God. And God's knowledge of his child is active knowledge. It's not just that God knows and he's back there kind of being entertained. (laughs) David says in verse 5, You have enclosed me behind and before. You have laid your hand on me. You know what that means when God lays his hand on you? It means he's calling the shots. In verse 10, after speaking of all the remote places that he can think of, that he could, where he could never elude the presence of God, David says, even there your hand will what? Will lead me. And your right hand will lay hold of me. And then he says, if I say surely, the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. 1 John 5 verse 4 says, God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. That's what David's getting at. See, because God is light, David knows that the darkness in this world is no threat to him. Darkness cannot overwhelm light. We've been looking at that in the Gospel of John over and over. And then he says, well, he says, I was thinking, when I was looking at this, I was thinking about the valley of the shadow of death in Psalm 23. Even though I pass through the valley of the shadow of death, it sounds like a pretty dark place. David says, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. And then he, said, he makes this amazing statement. He says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. We talked this morning about, about meals and fellowship and, and sitting down to dinner with God. That's what David says, God does that with us on the battlefield. When we're surrounded by our enemies. Whatever the darkness looks like, it cannot overwhelm you if the true God is your God. When things look dark and fearsome to you, the problem is never that God has failed to take something about you or about your situation into account. The problem is that you have failed to take something about God into account. If the God that David is talking to here is the shepherd and guardian of your soul, then even the things that godless men fear the most are absolutely no threat to you because they're no threat to God. (laughs) The God who sees in the dark. We walk by faith and not by sight because it's never our sight that guarantees our well-being. It's His sight and, and He sees absolutely everything. There's this marvelous statement in Jeremiah 10, verse 23. It says, I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to, di- to direct his steps. That's a promise, not a threat. <laughs> it's marvelous that God's the one who puts his hand on us and directs our steps because he sees in the dark and he's everywhere. 
David's first declaration to God is, how wonderful is your knowledge of me? His second declaration is, how wonderful is your workmanship in me? In the second half of verse 14, David says to God, wonderful, there's that word again, wonderful are your works. And my soul knows it very well. Which works of God is David talking about? He's not talking about all of them. He's talking about the works of God that produced David and that that he does through David. And these verses are often cited um, in verses 13 to 16 are often cited uh, by the pro-life movement, and rightly so, I should say, to demonstrate that the womb is God's domain. It's God's workplace. David gives thanks to God because he he is fearfully and wonderfully made. He was skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. That's an analogy for his mother's womb. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation and God repeats that marvelous work every time a child is conceived in its mother's womb. And David acknowledges that that miraculous work of God begins even before conception. He says... (laughs) To God, you have seen my unformed substance and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me before there was as yet one of me. Not only did God skillfully weave David in his mother's womb, he ordained every single one of the days that David walked on this earth. And the same is true of you. So what does it mean that God skillfully wove, that he embroidered, embroidered you in your mother's womb and that he ordained every one of your days. Well, it means that you are an exceedingly purposeful creation. You are a purposeful workmanship. It means that God has things that he intends to do in you and through you and your days belong to him. Now, how impressive is a complex creation that doesn't do what it was made to do. If I wanted to see a really impressive squirt gun at work, I could go over to Carrie's warehouse this afternoon with my drill and I could drill a little tiny hole in one of the tubes on his forklift. And then I could stand back and wait for the next time he lifts up one of those huge boxes that he rents out and, and I could watch to see what kind of stream of fluid would come out of that tube. But if I wanted to turn that forklift into a squirt gun, I would, I would find that it didn't work out quite the way I intended. Because see, at, at about 2,000 pounds per square inch of pressure, the stream coming out of that tube would would be more likely to cut somebody's hand off than it would to be entertaining. And probably within a split second, there'd be a catastrophic failure of that tube and it would just blow up. And then, you know what that forklift would be good for? Nothing. It wouldn't even lift a fork. See, that's the kind of thing that happens when the real purpose for which something was created gets replaced by some other purpose. God knows exactly why you exist. He made you very purposefully. 
He knows why you exist today and what He intends to do in and through you this very day. And unless you are listening and submitting to what He has to say to you, you don't know your purpose. Unless you let Him tell you why you exist, you will absolutely get it wrong. When I was in my third year at Texas A&M, our campus crusade group went around the campus doing this little survey with students. Of course, we had an ulterior motive. The survey had one question on it. Why do you exist? Actually, the the wording of the question is, why are you here? And then we explain. That doesn't mean, why are you here at Texas A&M or why are you here in front of this building at this moment? The, The question is, why are you here? And it was amazing the answers that we got to that question. Most of them revolved around the idea that people thought they were here to earn a really good living or to really enjoy life. Some just said to have a lot of fun. A a few said things about, you know, helping mankind. And a statistically insignificant number of answers mentioned God. And, And this was 30 years ago at one of the most conservatively minded public universities in the country. What do you think it's like now? It it doesn't get better. See, what amazed me about that that whole survey episode was how wrong people are about why they're here. God didn't create anybody to have a good time. He didn't create anybody just to make a good living. He didn't create anybody to do good things for other people that leave God out of the definition of good. James 1.17 says, every good thing and every gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So there's no such thing as good that leaves God out. Who should get to tell you why you're here and what you're supposed to be doing? Well, how about the one who skillfully and purposefully made you? The one who knows you perfectly and knows exactly why you exist. Nobody else is qualified to tell you. Certainly not you. David's third passionate declaration to God is in verses 17 and 18. And I consider these two verses to be the most surprising part of this surprising psalm. In the original text, verse 17 begins with a prepositional phrase, to or toward me. And that phrase has been understood essentially two different ways. Listen to these two renderings because there's a really important difference between them. One possible translation would be, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. The second would be, How precious, O God, are your thoughts toward me. You see the difference? 
One would praise God for all of his thoughts. The other would praise God for the thoughts that he has toward me. Now, based on the context of this psalm and everything we've seen thus far, which of those two do you think it is? It's the second one. Uh, because of the unusual placement of that of the prepositional phrase to or toward me right at the beginning of the verse in the original, and even more because of the, the very consistent theme of this psalm, I'm convinced that the second rendering is the right one. How precious, O oh God, are your thoughts toward me. How vast is the sum of them. Do you ever think of God in those terms? That his thoughts toward you are so vast that they cannot be numbered? David already said the knowledge that left him in awe of God in the first 12 verses was God's knowledge of him, of David. He said the workmanship that left him in awe of God in verses 13 to 16 was God's workmanship in him, in David. And now he says the thoughts that leave him in awe of God are God's thoughts about him. Now, if your reaction to that is that it sort of demeans God to represent Him as having such a focused interest in a mere mortal, especially if this were to be applied to you, then you've got things exactly backwards. The God who is 100% aware actively aware of all that's going on with every single person He created all the time is the God who alone is worthy of your awareness all the time. See, this psalm's not about David. It's not about you. It's not about me. This psalm is about God. It's about how profoundly God's knowledge of you and purpose toward you and thoughts concerning you demand that your attention and affection and devotion and obedience be focused on Him instead of on you. God is infinitely more mindful of you than you are. And if you're like me, that's hard to imagine. With all the countless hours you spend thinking about yourself, protecting yourself, worrying about your well-being, you need to know that your attentiveness to you is nothing compared with God's attentiveness to you. David says, when I awaken, I'm still with you. He's saying, even when he's asleep, he's never off of God's radar. He wakes up and poof, there's God again. He's there all the time. You know what this means, beloved? It means that your mindfulness toward yourself is just a pointless duplication of effort. Your thoughts about yourself will never amount to more than a teeny, tiny, little, badly corrupted subset of God's thoughts toward you. So why are you wasting your time thinking about you instead of Him? The person you should be thinking about is the one who made you. The one who really, really knows you. The one who watches over you. 
The One who leads you. The One who never leads you. The One who actually controls your well-being. Because you certainly don't. I'm going to insert a very brief rabbit trail here about depression. And I speak from painful first-hand experience. One of the most freeing things that God ever taught me is that depression is just as selfish as arrogance. Depression looks like humility, but it is as self-focused as vain, boastful arrogance. Thinking too much about yourself is every bit as prideful and every bit as destructive as thinking too much of yourself. In both cases, the marvelous, life-changing solution is to get over yourself and start thinking about God. Now, I don't say that to hurt anyone. I know firsthand how pervasive the grip of depression can be. And I'm not crusading against any of the various treatments to help take the edge off of depression, but beloved, there's only one cure for it. And it's right here. There's only one cure. Enough about that. If you compare your connection to you with God's connection to you, His is infinitely better informed, infinitely more purposeful, and infinitely more constructive. Let me break that down just a little. God is infinitely better informed about you than you will ever be about yourself. You can obsess with finding yourself until the cows come home, and you'll never even come close to the understanding that God has of you. Not only does God know you and understand you better than you know yourself, He is infinitely more purposeful in that knowledge than you will ever be. On your very best day, you're going to struggle to stay focused on the reason for doing whatever it is that you're doing. God's not going to struggle to stay focused. (laughs) He's, He's right on target all the time. He doesn't get sidetracked. And when it comes to the quality of His purpose toward you, His intentions toward you are infinitely more righteous, more pure, and more valuable than yours will ever be toward yourself. So who's going to do a better job of running your life? You or God? And who should be the focus of your attention? You or God? This matters, beloved. Your place in this simple equation is utter dependence on the one who made you. On the one who perfectly searches and knows you. The one who knows exactly how to lead you. And that should take you back to the heart of Scott's message last week. If you are not regularly beholding God in His Word and just as regularly acknowledging what you have beheld in fervent, undistracted prayer, 
your focus is going to drift right back to a misplaced and spiritually destructive focus on self. If you ever worked on cars, every time you drop a bolt, you know where it goes? Bottom dead center. Just It's just where it goes. I don't know what's down there, but there's something that just grabs bolts. Right? Your bottom dead center is self. That's your default. That's where you're going to go if you are not focusing your attention on the one who made you. What's the big idea? God's active awareness of you is so complete and so perfect that your awareness of yourself is useless. Do you think that matters for how you live? It matters a lot. The fourth passionate declaration that David lifts up to God in this psalm is in verses 19 to 22. How hateful to me are those who hate you, O Lord. He presents an imprecatory prayer to God. It's a call for God to slay God's own enemies. There are a number of such prayers in the Psalms, and most of them were written by David. There's a reason for that. All of them give us some level of heartburn, right? Now, it would be convenient for us to say that David is speaking of hate here only in in sort of an active sense. He doesn't really feel hatred toward these people because that would be hypocritical. I don't think that's a legitimate understanding. Love and hate are active words in the Bible. They're verbs, not mere feelings. And David was commissioned by God to actively and militantly hate the enemies of Israel and of God by literally waging war against them. But David did not carry out that assignment dispassionately. He got very good at it, but he didn't carry out the assignment dispassionately. And he's not speaking dispassionately here. He says, do I not loathe those who hate you, O Yahweh? And that word loathe is translated in other, some other good translations as despise and detest. Does that sound dispassionate? He says, I hate them with the utmost hatred. It would be very poor handling of God's Word to rip the emotional intensity out of those statements. Our problem with passages like that is that we want everything to be rigorously systematic. right? We think every declaration in God's Word has to somehow cover all bases. Sometimes we just need to take a theological chill pill and let the passage say what it says in its own context. Throughout this great psalm, David is beside himself in awe and wonder as he meditates on God's perfection of knowledge toward him. On God's perfect workmanship in him. On God's unrelenting attentiveness toward him. And as he ponders those things about God, he thinks about these nations and people that despise God, that raise up their fist against God, that would love to do away with God. And he feels hatred. 
towards them. That does not mean that David thinks he deserves to be the object of God's steadfast covenant love. Read 2 Samuel 7. He says, Who am I that you would bring me this far? If you are among the redeemed of God, it is as unthinkable that you would never experience that kind of anger toward the enemies of God as it is that you would not long for the redemption of those who remain in the darkness that used to be the only thing that you knew. The last two verses of this psalm prove that David does not see himself through rose-colored glasses. Those last two verses present a passionate appeal to the God who knew David better than he would ever know himself. If you compare the first verse of this psalm with the last two verses, you'll discover one of the most powerfully important things you will ever know about living as a child of God. In verse 1, David said, O Lord, You have searched me and known me. And then he spends 17 verses laying out the perfection of that searching and knowing. And then at the end of the psalm, he makes this request of God, Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. That request is based on everything that David's already said about God in this psalm. Since God, let's turn this back to you and me. Since God knows you infinitely better than you will ever know yourself, since God's workmanship in you is more perfect and more purposeful than any work you'll ever muster up from within yourself, since God's thoughts about you are more vast, more pure, more constructive, more perfect than any you will ever have about yourself, who's going to do a better job of smoking out your sin and leading you in the way of righteousness? You or God? I think this is an amazing truth. If you tried to think of one thing where we should be able to say, okay, God wants me to take a really hard look at me, what would it be? It would be my sin. But who is David going to to look at his sin? To smoke out his sin? There's a reason for that. Now please don't hear something I'm not saying. We are commanded to examine ourselves to see that the faith to which we hold and which we proclaim to this dark world is the true faith once delivered to the saints. We're commanded to examine ourselves before we partake of the Lord's Supper to make sure that we're not doing so in a trivial manner. That we're not demeaning that which we're supposed to be celebrating. There must be times of self-examination. But brothers and sisters, the Christian life is not a life of constant and rigorous attention to self. It is a life of constant and obsessive attention to Christ. There's a big difference between those two focuses. We run the marathon of this life not by fixing our eyes on ourselves and our sin, but by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith.
Sin is convoluted and complex and impossible to decipher. Righteousness is dirt simple. All we have to do is keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, and He's going to be at work in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. Who's going to be at work in us to will and to work for His good pleasure? Philippians 2.13 God! Not you! God! We're not supposed to sit around for hours trying to ferret out every subtle and deceptive sin in our hearts. Considering how very poorly we know ourselves, that's a good way to waste a lot of time. Instead, we cry out with David to the one who actually and perfectly knows us. Lord, You search me and know my heart. You test me in Your refiner's furnace and smoke out every hurtful way in me. And then lead me, Father. Lead me in the everlasting way. We need to get over ourselves and get focused like a laser on Jesus Christ. So what's the big idea? His active awareness of you is so complete and so perfect that your awareness of yourself is useless. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth and the things of you will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Pray silently with me. Father, how wonderful is Your knowledge of me. How wonderful is Your workmanship in me. How precious are Your thoughts toward me. How I hate those who hate You. You who are so lovely to me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Each of us ask this of of You in the name of Jesus. The incomparable name. Amen.